Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is the Frey Podcast, brought to you by thefrey.com, a place for women who want more from life. podcast is a conversation with birth cartographer Catherine Bell. Our conversation today is really centered around her concept of birth mapping and how important it is to feel empowered as a woman when you are considering becoming pregnant or if you are becoming pregnant or whether it's your second, third, fourth, fifth, first, eighth baby. Birth mapping is a concept that I really believe in and I believe that it's something we've been missing because it's so much more than a birth plan and I will let Catherine explain that all to you during our conversation. For a bit of context, Catherine is a trained doula and a trained breastfeeding educator and counsellor with the Australian Breastfeeding Association. She is an author of her very popular and very needed book, The Birth Map. She is just an advocate. She's a leader. You're going to hear, you're going to hear just the passion coming from Catherine throughout our conversation. So let's get straight into it and have a chat with Catherine Bell. Catherine, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to have this conversation with me. No worries. Thank you for inviting me along. Of course. Now, I invited you along and I reached out to you really, really quickly after I had a conversation with a previous uh, guest, Shari Line, because during my conversation with Shari, she could not stress enough that it was really important to her that a lot of women looked up you. And they, she said like, just go and look up Catherine Bell. She's doing amazing work and she's a birth cartographer and she talks about a birth map in place of a birth plan. And as soon as Shari said the words birth map, for me visually, I was like, oh, that feels so much more expansive than a plan does. It feels like you've got options, you've got paths to take. And for me, it kind of made me think if I was pregnant and mapping out my options, it would be such a sensible and realistic way to go into my delivery. So where did the term birth mapping come from? A similar uh, uh, kind of mindset, this visualisation. When I was between baby number three and baby number four, I was beyond frustrated with the term plan. Every time I mentioned plan, walls would go up, conversations would stop. You'd, you'd be accused of having ideas above your station that you were trying to tell the authority how to do their job. And so conversations were shutting down. And so one day I was uh, sort of brainstorming 
what was in my head onto the page, trying to think of ways I could communicate this better with my care provider. And I thought, oh, that kind of looks like a map. Oh, I think I might be onto something here. Googling furiously birth map, has somebody invented this? Have I come across this somewhere before? And I couldn't find anything no one's used this term, birth map, but it makes so much sense. And I love the way you summarize it there with the pathways and the, the, the concept just makes sense. So it just seemed too simple. And as it developed and I used the word map instead of plan with my care provider in my fourth pregnancy, the conversation opened up. And suddenly I was able to communicate what I needed and get the information that I needed in order to make informed decisions. And it was around that time that I started thinking, one of the other problems is we keep referring to these decisions as wishes and preferences which just diminishes our power. And that's that was just like this light bulb moment going off. So I started documenting all of the things that I wish that I had known to ask. That's the wishes bit that I was, a, I was open to. But what I was <laughs> wanting to do was make decisions, informed decisions. And in order to do that, I needed questions not answers. So I documented all the things I wish that I had had known to ask. All my mother friends had other questions that they wished that they'd known to ask. And so I just started writing them all down. The idea being that I would have maybe an A4 page of uh, question prompts to share with my doula clients. And so I accidentally wrote a book because there were that many questions that needed to be asked and then putting them into um, the section. So your first stage of labour, your second stage of labour, the third stage of labour, so that it could break it down into bite-sized conversations and the idea being you could ask a couple of questions at each antenatal as you built your map. And this idea that you were creating a landscape, an understanding of where you were going so that in the moment you're not second-guessing yourself. You see the signposts and you can say, I know where I am and I know where I need to go. So the the concept of the map just made sense on so many levels. It was brilliant and I'm like, oh, my God, I invented this. (laughs) It is brilliant. And I think it's amazing, as you said, that when you went searching to see if that term had been coined before, that it hasn't been because as you're speaking about it, Catherine, it makes so much sense. Because if we're going in with a plan and a wish list, as you said, it's just that it's a plan for the ideal outcome and our wish list. But often when we find ourselves in a situation that feels out of our depth, That's when we do sort of, I guess, well, I mean, I can only speak for myself and I'm sure you can speak on behalf of a lot of women because you're in this field, but I know I have, I definitely had the tendency when I was pregnant to defer my decisions to the experts because I kind of felt like I was being pulled along in this stream of like, oh, yep, go from here, go from there, and yes, yes, sir, no, sir, whatever you say, sir, type of thing. And when I'm hearing you speak, 
the birth map sounds like it's really all about putting the woman and putting the, you know, whoever's involved in the driver's seat of being informed and making their own decisions and knowing the questions to ask because if you don't know what questions to ask, you can't ask them. Absolutely. We don't know what we don't know. So the book um, that I wrote called The Birth Map was essentially the questions that I wish I'd known to ask so that I could get the information that I needed. And the idea between in knowing the questions is that you can then take responsibility. So you've probably heard the phrase, with great power comes great responsibility. But it's the other way around. That's Spider-Man, isn't it? That's Spider-Man, <laughs> but he got it wrong. With great responsibility <laughs> comes great power. We always have our power. Mm. It's always sitting there. But we don't always have the means to grasp it confidently. And that's where we need to take responsibility. Because of this pesky consent, we have responsibility whether we like it or not. So if we've got the means to be able to have the confidence to step into our power and take that responsibility, we're in a much better position to make informed decisions as we go along rather than having to default to the care provider because we're sort of stuck. We have no choice but to rely on their recommendation and go with it because we've got nothing else to go on if we don't understand what our full range of options are. Mm, And kind of sticking with the superhero analogy there, it is almost a call to greatness because a lot of us don't activate our responsibility to be our own advocate. You know, a lot of us have grown up in households where it wasn't the done thing, particularly for us as females. I mean, it's not just our household. It's, (laughs) as I say, the water we swim in. It's society at a whole. We are conditioned to be good, be easy, be compliant. And that's certainly how I felt through my pregnancy of don't rock the boat. You don't know what you're doing here. Defer, defer what you don't know to the experts. And so I love that concept of actually having a checklist to go into each appointment and knowing, knowing what to ask. I think that's brilliant. That's right. So many women go into their antenatal appointments and their midwife or care provider will say to them, do you have any questions? And they nearly always say, um, no, they know they're supposed to ask something. As a question, no. (laughs) But they don't know what it is. It's like, guide me here. But the care providers are living this day in, day out. They're also living the medicalised model of maternity care. So they're defaulting to the textbook learnings that they've had for the way you Um, approach birth. It's a tick box approach. There's a very narrow uh, uh, range of what's considered normal and anything outside of that has to be treated or brought back into line, if you like. And because it's a medicalized model, there's also this idea that we're looking for something 
wrong. We're constantly looking for a problem to be fixed, to, to make sure we stay within that narrow boundary. So there's not a an emphasis on uh, the emotional side of birth or the physiological, the normal physiological process of birth. And this is, as you've said, started from our girlhood. We are conditioned from a very young age to push ourselves aside, make room for others, accommodate others always. And so the convenience of the system becomes the priority rather than what's necessarily best for us. So when we default to our care provider, more more often than not, the decision or the recommendation that's being suggested to us is what's convenient to the system. We're coming up to December. So a lot of women who are in their late stages of pregnancy are going to be encouraged to have an induction, perhaps to avoid birth on Christmas Day, perhaps because of um, the the impending uh staff shortages, uh, there's conveniences that need to be managed. So it would be very good if they had that induction, but it's not going to be worded as convenient to the system. It's going to be worded as uh, the risk doubles. And as Shari said when she was speaking to you, what does that actually mean? Are we talking uh, now we're going from a 50% chance to a 100% chance of something terrible happening? Or is it Point two going to point four, like this is, this is ridiculous. The um, the context of what doubled means needs to be really clear, and oftentimes the language that is used to encourage us to do what's recommended is worded in a way that does sound a little bit more serious than it might actually be. But if we don't know how to ask those questions, or we don't understand how those statistics play out. We're kind of left in a position of going, uh, it's pretty obvious what I'm expected to do here, so I'll just do what's expected. That default, the cascade of consent. Yeah, the path of least resistance. The path of least resistance. And we do that because it feels like the path of least damage. If I, for want of a better way of phrasing it, but this will uh, hit the bone as it should be, we just lay down and take it and then it's over and we hope that it'll be quicker. Yeah, get through it. Get through it and then we can Mm -hmm. just sort of block it out and move on because all that matters is a healthy baby and we are just trained to believe that, that we do not matter, that we can push ourselves aside you internalize it, no one complains, and then uh, on we on we move because we don't matter. And what <laughs> I'm sitting here just like <laughs> nodding because I'm yeah. like, yeah, reflecting on my own experience, definitely. I mean, as I said to you before we hit record, I've got eight-year-old twin boys and I had an emergency C-section with them. And on reflection, I was scheduled to have a C-section anyway on a Monday but I had an appointment on the Friday. And on reflection, I do wonder if the emergency C-section was because let's get let's knock this over on a Friday versus waiting over the weekend. There was kind of a bit of an undertone to that. And, you know, everything's different in hindsight perhaps, but I'm sitting here nodding because I can relate to so much of it. And I definitely did not activate 
my responsibility of asking those questions. It was such a foreign place to be in and 27-year-old Kylie is different to 34-year-old Kylie, but I love, I love, love, love this idea of having that framework. And with that framework, with this mapping, how do you find that people respond to it in the system? This is where it's been an absolutely delight, delightful change because what happened when I started using the term map and phrasing things as being prepared for several possibilities is that the system suddenly became friendlier because now I'm speaking in a way that doesn't challenge them. We're now communicating and sharing information. And so what could take place was this thing called shared decision-making, which is often um, misinterpreted as shared decision-making because it's such a stupid phrase. (laughs) Shared decision-making really should be called supported decision-making because the decision belongs to, to the woman or in any aspect of medical care, the person who is receiving the treatment or receiving the care. And the care provider's responsibility is to provide information, risks, benefits and alternatives. They have a discussion, questions are asked, questions are answered, and then the person might go away and seek that additional information or get a second opinion before making a decision. But the decision belongs to them. But unfortunately, because most people don't have the means to have that conversation, the default way that shared decision-making ends up happening is care provider makes a recommendation and patient agrees. And then we move on. Consent is taken place. It's documented. You agreed. Away we go. So what the birth mapping process does is not just change the word map, but give that framework so that women can go into their antenatal appointments with some questions to ask to build their own map. So the book gives lots of question suggestions. As women go through the book, there's going to be questions that pop out to them really strongly and they'll think, wow, that's that's a non-negotiable for me. I really need to make sure that this particular birth location can support that. And that might be that they really want to have a water birth. They've, they've read about water birth. They know water birth is going to work for them. And then they ask the question and they discover, no, we, are, we have a policy at this hospital. You will not be birthing in the water. Or if your waters have broken, your, um, your amniotic fluids have released, then you are definitely not getting in the bath. Ooh, maybe I want to change locations. Maybe I want to look at other options. If you're asking your really non-negotiable questions early, you've got much more time to change care providers if you find that there's not an alignment. And how early on is early in terms of working out your non-negotiables when you're pregnant? Oh, like ideally day one, you know, if you are aware, if you've been preparing um, for pregnancy, so it's not a um, a surprise pregnancy and you, you know, if like me, you spent three years attempting to get pregnant. So you had a lot of time to get, get prepared only to discover, you know, nothing, 
Uh, if 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 this Catherine could go back to that Catherine and say, "Here, read this book," it would have been so much better. <laughs> but uh, you only have what you have to go with. You only have um, the information that's available to you at the time. And for many women, it starts with the GP. They go to the general practitioner, they've peed on the stick, they've seen the two lines and the GP confirms the pregnancy for them and then refers them um, based on whether or not they've got private health care or not. If you've got private health insurance, off you go to the obstetrician. If you don't, off you go to the public system. If your GP does not support home birth, you're not going to know that there's a home birth midwife. If they don't like the birth centre, you're not going to know about the birth centre. So unless you happen to know other women who have gone before you and can say, hey, you've got to ring the birth centre now or you're not going to get in and um, because they fill up quickly and this is where continuity of care happens. So if you really want to have a natural birth or you're, you know, there's nothing about you that says I should prepare for anything other than a natural birth. I'm a, I'm a healthy woman. My pregnancy is um, likely to be a healthy pregnancy. Let's start with the premise that all is well. I would like to align myself with a care provider who will give me the support I need to have a natural birth. That's midwifery care, continuity um, of midwifery care, one midwife supporting you all the way through. Less than 10% of women in Australia will have access to that kind of care. This should be the minimum all women get. Mm. We should all be starting in continuity of midwifery care. And then from there, we can seek obstetric care if our pregnancy becomes high risk or we can seek um, other other um, more medicalized care care options if that's what we prefer but if we want to have a natural birth and we go to an obstetrician we really we're really pushing ourselves up the hill um, it's a very steep hill to climb that one adding more resistance it is and um, and so that um, that first thing that we need to do is understand that there is 11 different models of care in Australia which one is the right one for you now some of these models are a default if you live in remote Australia you're going to get the remote area um, care model if you live in uh, the inner city you might have three different hospitals to choose from a private midwife as well as private you know you, you might have a lot more options so rural women generally don't have as much as much to choose from and so if you end up having to um, accept standard care because that's the only option then we need to add other layers what else can we do to own this birth to make sure that we get what we need out of this birth and the more we know the more we're able to align ourselves and build a support around us so whether that's helping our partner to understand and this is where birth mapping has been a particularly wonderful surprise it's genius for the partner It basically gives them an if this, then that set of instructions. They know what they need to do. Which I imagine gives them a sense of 
which I imagine gives them a sense of agency when they're feeling out of control and like they can't do anything. Yes. So it's bringing them into the fold. It shifts them from being a protector where they really want to fix things and make things better but don't really know what to do and they become a supporter where they feel calm and confident. When they're in protector mode, they are oozing adrenaline, which is contagious, makes everybody tense and makes the mother tense and, of course, tense is not a good way to have a baby. But when we can shift our partner into support mode, they just bathe in that oxytocin and they're spreading the love. They feel cool, calm and collected. So mum feels cool, calm and collected. She can just disappear into that zone, go off to the stars to collect the baby and come back while the partner is creating that awesome support around them. They know who's who in the room. They know why things are being offered and they know what direction to go in when they reach a detour point. So the map is about making sure they understand that an epidural, for example, is not just an epidural. There's another story that comes behind that epidural. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The pathway that comes after the epidural looks very different to the pathway that we would have if we didn't have the epidural. There's more monitoring. The epidural comes with a catheter. The epidural comes with a a drip for hydration. We've now got three pins in us with an epidural. We're also perhaps going to need a fourth one because if we haven't already had syntocinin, the epidural might slow things down. So the syntocinin needs to come in to boost things along again. And now we've got a highly medicalized birth that has a much higher chance of an assisted delivery. That's where they might cut an episiotomy and use the forceps or the vacuum extraction to assist the baby out. This, of course, then has the higher risk of a fourth degree tear and some very serious um, recovery issues. If we understand that that pathway, that epidural decision point takes on a whole new level of understanding. Hmm, I don't think I like the idea of that risk of that fourth degree tear. How can I avoid an epidural? Let's move back. Oh, water birth, massage, movement. I I now have many more tools at my disposal rather than defaulting to an epidural because society has told us that an epidural is the only way to have a baby because you've got nothing to prove. There's no prizes. Leave your dignity at the door. These are the messages we receive. So (laughs) the more we know, the better our decisions. With that mapping... Absolutely. And with that mapping, rather than saying, okay, here's option A, option A might be this, option B might be this. It's like, here are your options. And behind door number B, (laughs) this is what it leads to. And then that's what that leads to. And And so even then, if a woman 
is choosing to go ahead and have an epidural, she's going in with awareness and understanding. And I imagine that awareness and understanding helps to reduce then the level of birth trauma that she might experience. Absolutely. Um, So one of the best stories and feedback that I got from um, someone who'd used my book was they'd written to me and said, I just got to share this with you, Catherine. I really wanted a natural birth. I There was no reason not to assume it. But birth had been going on for some time and the question popped into my head, under what conditions would you accept an epidural? It's one of the signposts, one of the questions that we need to consider um, and, and understand what the pathway looks like beyond it. And she's like, ooh, I'm at, I'm at that detour point. She recognised that she was meeting all of the conditions. She'd tried everything else and she'd now reached that particular detour point and she said, I'll have an epidural. And they gave her the epidural and what her epidural did was break the tension in the room. Everybody calmed down. She got a bit of a rest and within a couple of hours she actually pushed her baby out on her own steam without um, any assistance. What that epidural actually did for her was break some tension in the room, allowed everything to calm down and she was able to slip back into herself to collect her baby from the stars and, and birth on her own terms. And she came out of that birth going, I am a champion. I did it. It was my birth, my way the whole time because she made informed decisions rather than being dragged along um, in, in a way that made her feel like she was not being heard or out of control. And we know that when women feel heard and in control, they're less likely to feel trauma. We also know that the partner, when they are feeling heard and in control and able to support their partner, they're less likely to feel trauma. And so the couple can move through that birth experience, hopefully to a place where they can then move into that transition of parenting uh, in a much more confident way where they're constantly communicating with each other and able to transition from being a couple into that parent zone. And, and that's a huge shock. A lot of birth planning tends to stop at about that third stage. The babies come out and we might say we want delayed cord clamping and skin to skin and then that's the end of the birth plan. But there's this whole other bit that comes afterwards. There's the breastfeeding and then there's a toddler and then there's a preschooler and then they become a teenager and yet there's this whole bit called parenting that comes after. And so with birth mapping, I encourage people to consider what life after the birth is going to look like? What support systems do you need? What's important to you? What are your values? Are you going back to work or are you going to be at home? Is the partner having time off or does the partner need to be you know, back in the back in the workplace um, fairly quickly. Who's around you that can help? And so, in the book, I encourage women to have a gathering of supporters towards the end of their pregnancy, where ideally they're stocking the freezer with food or the promise of food to be delivered along the way. They're uh, perhaps setting up a um, 
a support system that'll come in and help with cleaning or cooking, so simple tasks around really the house. Really rallying the village. Yeah, the village. And, and that's going to look different for everyone. Some people don't like to outsource um, a, a lot of stuff and it's really hard for them to ask for help. So this is a, a way of helping them to recognise that it's absolutely okay to ask for help. It's not a sign of weakness to need help. It's a sign of love and support and community. And particularly if it's not your first rodeo and you've got a couple of other children, you still are making a transition as a family. And support for those other children, someone to take them to the park, someone to ensure that they're still being checked in on as well, can make an enormous difference as the family transitions. And it might only need to be that fourth trimester, that first 12 weeks where um, a really solid support system needs to be in place. But for some people, that first year, it's intense and that first year in particular needs to be considered as the fourth trimester. I, I really um, feel um, we cut women off too quick. You know, the system lets us go at six weeks. That's it. Six weeks, um, you're, you're yeah. now no longer there. Six hours in some cases, and then you're into a different system. But 12 months, we go through this process called matrescence. Have you heard this word, Kylie? Matrescence? Oh, it is yeah, the most incredible I've, I've word. I've got um, one of my very good girlfriends, Libby Quinn. She's a psychologist, and we did a whole episode speaking about matrescence. And it was so eye-opening because – you know, and I mean, I'm sure that a lot of people have listened to it, but if they haven't, go back and listen to that episode because we do a bit of a deep dive on it. And for me, just understanding my trescence, you know, the way Libby explained it was, it is as important and as big as going through adolescence. And that just felt like a weight off my shoulder of being like, oh, and because at the time I felt like I was drowning, but no wonder I felt like that because I'm going through all of these changes. And no one around me knew of the term matrescence. You know, I had in-laws that put a lot of pressure on me. And if if only they knew and understood that I wasn't purposefully being difficult, I was just trying to adapt to my new reality. Like people need to know about this. Oh, it, it's so yeah. empowering to the gift of understanding matrescence and having that word and knowing it before you have your baby, not when you're in the thick of it. Um, because it's just like in adolescence. If you tell an adolescent that they're going through something big, that you know, they're not they're not interested. Um, when we are in the thick of it and living it, that's not the time for the information. The information needs to come beforehand so that we can recognize it for what it is and sit with it and honor it and allow the transformation to take place. We are not going to return to our pre-baby body. And why should we have to? We are transforming from maiden to mother. We are becoming something super powerful and awesome. If, if you're producing milk, like I make milk, what's your superpower? How awesome are women's bodies that we can do this? We can grow humans and we can nurture humans. Why is this not being honoured? And it's a year process of our entire body remaking itself. And this begins with the process of birth. Birth is just the beginning. And if we get birth 
right. If we honour that process of birth, that's that's the gateway to something absolutely incredible. And so many women come through birth. It's it's increasingly, it's over one in four now, are um, coming through with birth trauma. And a lot more of them are coming through disappointed. I've been told that women expect too much. We really shouldn't have such high expectations. And I thought, what are women actually expecting? Oh, I think they're expecting respect. Mm. <laughs> they're respect, expecting to come through birth honoured and, um, and cared for. Now, I don't think this is too much to expect. I don't think that's too much at all. No. <laughs> And something you said before, Catherine, really struck a chord in me. I mean, everything you're saying is striking a chord. I feel emotional even speaking about my tressence, particularly when I think on, you know, I just wish people around new mums understood yes. my tressence especially. But aside from that, something you mentioned earlier when you spoke about, you know, you've taken a pregnancy test and then you head to your GP. And if your GP has a personal aversion to a certain style of care, you might not get afforded the option to even yeah. know about that. And that's something that I really want to stress for anyone who is considering having a child because I found that when I was in hospital, I found myself trying to please the staff and then noticing, well, this is impossible because then there's a staff change. And, you know, I think at first I thought that everything a staff member told me was gospel. So like, oh, okay, I've got to put a wet washer on their feet when I'm feeding them to keep them awake. And then the next one would say, no, no, let them feed while they're asleep. And I was like, just impossibly did it, did it. And then I realized, well, Karen has a different personal opinion and Sharon has a different personal opinion. And here I was on this like quest to please these other people based off their personal opinions, off their own personal experiences. And that would be something different for me if I was to go again. It would be having the awareness that medical experts also have a personal bias towards certain things. Absolutely. Everyone has a bias and the the bias in obstetric care is medicalised care. The the bias in midwifery care is more physiological um, alignment, just at a very general level. But then within that, you will have a midwife who maybe last week they had a really difficult birth experience. They were supporting a mum who had a really difficult time. They're carrying that story into the next woman's um, birth. And so you're going to be impacted by what she experienced in her workplace. And if there's not good debriefing happening between births for midwives, they are carrying uh, that bias along. So we definitely do need to be aware of that so we can say, I don't need to please anyone. It's my birth, my way. And it's okay to claim that. It's not selfish. It's not entitled. It's having some boundaries, being informed and making some decisions that are right for you. And if the, the big theme that I have is there is no one way, absolutely no one way. There's no judgment on any of the pathways. We make the best decisions we can with the information that we have at the time. That's the way we're going to go, the best way at that time. 
And hindsight is wonderful and we do often second guess ourselves afterwards. New information comes to us and we think, oh, I would have done it differently. But I didn't know at that time. I made the best decision I could at that time. Yeah, absolutely. I wish that your book was sold with all pregnancy tests. (laughs) It just sounds like such, it sounds like just such a supportive and reasonable resource. And I think that's, that's what's lacking. You know, it's just rather than going into pregnancy with this, you know, I don't want to say idealistic or perhaps even going into pregnancy, looking through the Instagram lens of how to have a perfect pregnancy on the surface. None of that matters. Like it's so important, as you said, to understand matrescence, understand what birth trauma is, understand your rights and activate that responsibility to be your own advocate and bringing your partner, if you've got a partner, into the fold. And that that partner, it might not be the the other parent, it might be your mother, your sister, whoever becomes your primary support for that journey. um, That's the person who you want to bring into that space with the map. They become the embodiment of the map. They Uh, It it doesn't matter if you write the map down, uh, as long as your support person is well attuned to that map, they can advocate and help guide that process. But the written map that we present to our care provider, I like to think of it as um, the, the minutes of a meeting And that sounds really boring. It's definitely not glamorous. But when we reduce it to the minutes of the meeting, these are the action points. We had a conversation. This is what we agreed upon. It's a record of what happened. And when we put it into the notes that go um, with our antenatal records, it goes into our notes. It's accessible to the care provider. This is particularly important when we don't have continuity of care. It's in those notes. It can be seen. And the shorter it is, the more likely it is going to be read. And the simpler we write it, the more likely it is going to be absorbed. So there's no wishy-washy language. When we write it down, it is active language written in dot point short form. and succinct very simple no if you don't mind if it's if it's okay by you I thank you so much for supporting me in my labor that's their May I job. please stop that <laughs> you do not have to be polite you do not have to say thank you just state what is needed you will you will be courteous mm. and kind in everything you do as a, an ordinary person but the language that we use if we don't say please it doesn't mean we're being unkind or demanding we're simply stating a decision point it's been discussed it's the mm. summary of the conversation and so that helps us to record what has happened and what's been agreed upon especially in the absence of that continuity of care so that from one care provider to the next with different appointments and then the random person that supports us in our labor they can very quickly look at that and see ah yep it's been discussed and agreed upon it's in the notes and the simpler it is the more likely it's going to be paid attention to. Amazing. And before we hit record today, you mentioned to me as well that it would be important to bring up in our conversation about the PhD side of birth mapping. So I would love if you have a moment to speak a little bit about that. Yes. So 
Um, when I first wrote the book, uh, it became apparent that I was on to something potentially revolutionary. And so I started to seek um, support to look at it academically and test it out at an academic level. The idea being that I love the idea of everyone getting one with a pregnancy test, but the idea that the book is somehow (laughs) embedded in the system so that all women by default are doing birth mapping. How do I get this into the system? I know when you were speaking, I was... That's what I was thinking, you know, when you were speaking before. And the reason I said pregnancy test is because I'm like, it's not really appropriate to bring this to a high school level, but people need this information. Like if we're going out and we're going to procreate, we need to know this yeah, stuff. It's basic, basic knowledge that we've been, we, we've been robbed of. Women deserve to have this as the minimum. If women have the means to ask questions, then they have the ability to control that experience. They may only want to ask one question. Excellent. Then they know they've had that opportunity. They know what they don't know. They can ask what they want to ask. But there are some women like me who will ask every single question in the book, then come up with a 100 more on top of that and keep asking questions until they're absolutely satisfied that they completely understand what's going on and can make an informed decision. So with the PhD, I'll be um, testing this concept uh, in hopefully I can get representatives from every single model of care across Australia and each of those people will be given a copy of the book and the, the, the means to start this process on their own terms and then they will share with me their journey as they go along. And then after a year, when they've all gone through that journey, I'll be able to pull out the themes and find out what worked for who, in what circumstances, and how can we try and make this as universal as possible without making it a one-size-fits-all. The magic behind this concept is to get to a point where here's a framework, but you do you. How do we make you the centre of this this whole process without causing the system more work? So I don't think birth mapping costs the system anything because what we're doing is simply answering the questions that the women have a right to ask. So I don't think it should take more time for midwives and obstetricians to be able to incorporate this process. So by testing it at the PhD level, I can make sure that we get all the information we need in the context that then can help change policy. It's all great for me to say, hey, I've seen this work, it's brilliant, but policy won't listen unless it's gone through that academic rigour. And so I've just at the stage where I've completed my ethics and this is the cornerstone of, of everything scientific, getting the ethics right. This makes sure that everybody is looked after, that the benefits outweigh the risks, that the reasons for doing this research are warranted and that the the end point of this research, the hypothesis of this research is worth pursuing. And so um, it's actually uh, at the stage where the ethics um, committee is looking over it and once I've got the thumbs up from them, I can start seeking participants. So Anyone who's anticipating a pregnancy um, in uh, in 2022, keep your eyes open because you might get the opportunity 
um, to be a, a guinea pig in a revolution. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have no doubts, no doubts that this will go so much further and you're just doing such incredible work. And I agree with you. It's revolutionary and it's needed and it's been missing. It is definitely a gap that has needed to be filled. And it's so much more than just about a new mum. It's society in general. Like we need this support through Matrescence. So thank you for the work that you're doing and the enthusiasm that you bring to this work, because I can only imagine the hoops that you've had to jump through to just even get to the ethics stage right now. So thank you for being such a champion of women. Yeah, I can imagine. I'm like, oh, yeah. I need to lie down just thinking about it. <laughs> Catherine, in the meantime, where can our listeners connect with you? Where can they get their hands on a copy of the birth map? They can find everything they need to know about birth mapping at birthmap.life. Um, there's a free member area that they can sign up to and they can actually flick through the book online. It's all there and they can even play the game of birth, which is all in that um, member area ready for them to access. And I can be found on Instagram at birth mapping. And there is a Facebook um, called at the birth map as well. Amazing. I will have all of those details in our show notes. This is what I want. This is what I need. If you don't have to go, I can set you free. Are you going? Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.